Hello, I'm Kevin Fernando, a GP partner at North Berwick Health Centre near Edinburgh and also Education Director of GP Notebook Education. Welcome to our new season of GP Notebook Podcast, a bite-sized regular chat for all of us working in primary care. Podcasts will cover clinical tips and hacks as well as hot topics to help make our lives a wee bit easier, but ultimately to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. Follow me on Twitter at Dr. Kevin Fernando for more clinical tips and hacks relevant to all of us working in primary care. And also visit www.gpnotebookeducation.com to hear about our upcoming virtual GP notebook study groups for 2021, as well as download free resources and shortcuts. In this podcast, I'm going to talk about primary adrenal insufficiency or Addison's disease, an easily missed diagnosis in primary care. So let's start with a case we might all see in primary care. So we have Louise. She's 19 years old and she's been living with type 1 diabetes since the age of 7. And also she's been living with hypothyroidism since the age of 11. Because of their autoimmune relationships, these comorbidities are often seen together. So Louise presents to us in primary care with a history of unexplained recurrent bouts of hypoglycemia despite proactively lowering her insulin doses. She also describes some dizziness, some lightheadedness on sitting to standing. Her BMI is 19. A recent HbA1c was 63 millimoles per mole. You assess her, her sitting blood pressure was 119 over 67 millimetres of mercury and dropping to 99 over 72 when she was standing. And you also notice some patches of vitiligo on her face. In terms of her current medication, she's on her insulin regimen, a basal bolus regimen, and she also takes levothyroxine, 150 micrograms daily. On systemic inquiry, there's no recent change in diet or in particular physical activity levels that might account for these uh, unexplained recurrent episodes of hypoglycemia. So Louise, of course, has Addison's disease or primary adrenal insufficiency, a commonly misdiagnosis in primary care. So let's talk a wee bit about how we might improve our diagnosis and also uh, some uh, management tips on Addison's disease in primary care. So we had a really helpful BJGP article published a few years ago now during 2015 on identification and management of Addison's disease in primary care. So I'll take you through some key take-home messages from that article. And there was also a helpful New England Journal of Medicine review article looking specifically at adrenal crisis. Again, I'll take you through some key take-home messages from that article too. So Addison's disease is rare in the general population, one in 10,000 or thereabouts, but it's much, much more common in people living with type 1 diabetes, around 10 times more common. Now, the commonest cause of Addison's disease worldwide is actually TB, tuberculosis, leading to a bacterial destruction of the adrenal glands. Whereas in the developed world in the UK, the commonest cause of Addison's disease is autoimmune disease, leading to an autoimmune destruction of the adrenal glands. So the first key take-home message, ladies and gentlemen, for us all in primary care, if any of our patients living with type 1 diabetes present 
with recurrent unexplained episodes of hypoglycemia or admissions with DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis, think Addison's disease until proven otherwise. Furthermore, if our patients with living with type 1 diabetes tell us they've had an unexplained reduction in their total insulin dose of uh, around about 15 to 20% or greater in response to frequent episodes of hypoglycemia, this should also raise our suspicion of Addison's disease. And in fact, these changes in insulin doses may actually precede any clinical features of Addison's disease, which I'll talk about just shortly. Also remember to be aware of any abnormal pigmentation in people living with type 1 diabetes, uh, those patches of vitiligo that Louise has. If you see anyone living with type 1 diabetes with abnormal pigmentation, that warrants further investigation of adrenal cortical function because, again, of that close autoimmune relationship between type 1 diabetes, vitiligo, and Addison's disease. And finally, what about electrolyte dis uh, abnormalities then? I was always taught at medical school to diagnose Addison's disease. We need to look for hyponatremia, low sodium levels, or hyperkalemia, uh, high potassium levels. Well, what this BJGP paper reminds me is that these electrolyte abnormalities are actually often not present until an advanced stage of adrenal insufficiency. And actually, up to 30% of individuals do not have hyponatremia or hyperkalemia at any time. So really, the key take-home message here for us, ladies and gentlemen, is we mustn't rely on electrolyte abnormalities to establish a diagnosis of Addison's disease. So what are the clinical features of Addison's disease? Well, this, of course, is the big challenge for us in primary care because Addison's disease often follows a very insidious and protracted presentation, which results with frequent diagnostic delay. And in fact, tragically, a half of cases are only diagnosed after an acute adrenal crisis, which carries a 7% mortality rate. Symptoms can be very nonspecific, nonspecific malaise, anorexia or loss of appetite, generalized muscular, musculoskeletal pains, a range of gastrointestinal symptoms. A most specific symptom is actually salt craving, which may point to an underlying diagnosis of Addison's disease. Clinical signs might include dehydration, postural hypertension with a drop greater than 20 millimeters in mercury, proximal myopathy. You may see changes in the electrolytes, the hyperkalemia and the hyponatremia, but remember we mustn't rely on electrolyte abnormalities to establish a diagnosis of Addison's disease. A good initial test is a 9am cortisol. If this comes back at over 500 nanomoles per litre, then a diagnosis of Addison's disease is unlikely. If a 9 a.m. cortisol comes back at less than 100 nanomoles per liter, then prompt further investigations uh, are required to exclude an underlying diagnosis of Addison's disease. And the gold standard test is the short synaphthen test. And I'll talk a wee bit more about uh, tests uh, of the cortisol axis just shortly. 
there was also a useful reminder in the BJGP paper uh, about uh, not to miss Addison's disease in pregnancy. I've never seen this, uh, to be honest, uh, but uh, we're warned in pregnancy, symptoms of Addison's disease may be attributed to hyperemesis that we often see in pregnancy or cloasma, uh, that pigmentation that's often seen in pregnancy too. And furthermore, if we do establish a diagnosis of adrenocortical insufficiency, then we also should go on and investigate thyroid function and check thyroid autoantibodies. And that's because one in four people with Addison's disease also have evidence of hypothyroidism. So I thought it was a very useful tip for us all in primary care. And in fact, the converse situation is also very helpful to, to, to be aware of. If we establish a diagnosis of hypothyroidism and start thyroxine for that patient, but their symptoms get worse, this can actually be suggestive of coexisting Addison's disease. And actually, if we persevere with that thyroxine, even in uh, the presence of worsening symptoms, this might even precipitate an adrenal crisis. So another really useful take-home message for us all working in primary care. So what about the management of Addison's disease? Well, of course, everyone living with Addison's disease will be known to our secondary care endocrinology colleagues, and they will all need lifelong oral steroid replacement. Now, of course, we're going to take a steer from our endocrinology colleagues here, but everyone living with Addison's disease will require a glucocorticoid, usually hydrocortisone around about 15 to 30 milligrams, twice to three, three times a day. And they'll also require a mineralocorticoid, again, usually fludrocortisone, between 5 and 300 micrograms once to twice daily. And very importantly, we need to issue everyone living with Addison's disease hydrocortisone 100 milligram injections for emergency situations. And I'll talk a wee bit more about this just shortly. So when we review someone with Addison's disease, either opportunistically or routinely, we need to assess for under-replacement of steroids. So this might be ongoing symptoms of Addison's disease, those non-specific symptoms we were just talking about, those, that non-specific malaise, anorexia, or generalized musculoskeletal pains. And we should also be aware of over-replacement of steroids. And here we'll see those typical symptoms and signs of steroid excess. Hypertension, thin skin that easily bruises, striae or stretch marks, electrolyte imbalance. And here the pattern we're looking out for is hypokalemia and hypernatremia. We may also see glucose intolerance, hyperglycemia, or even overt steroid-induced diabetes. So be aware of over-replacement of steroids too. We need to reinforce individualized sick day guidance for everyone living with Addison's disease. And I'll tell you a wee bit more about that just in a second. We need to advise everyone to wear a medical alert bracelet and also to carry an adrenal emergency steroid can, which can be obtained from our community pharmacist colleagues. A really useful website to signpost all our patients living with Addison's disease to is www.addisonsdisease.org.uk, a website supporting 
people affected by adrenal insufficiency. Some great uh, information for patients themselves, but also for us as HCPs in primary care. I would highly recommend you have a look at this website. So what about that individualized sick day guidance? What should we be advising patients to do during any acute uh, intercurrent dehydrating illness such as diarrhea or vomiting? Well, it does have to be individualized, but as a rule of thumb, we should be advising individuals to double their hydrocortisone dose during any illness until recovery. And also we should be advising them to add five to 10 milligrams to their usual steroid regimen before any strenuous exercise. So some really useful uh, uh, facts for us in primary care. Now, last year, we did have some guidance published in the European Journal of Endocrinology telling us what to do with steroid doses during significant COVID-19 infection. Now, I recorded a brief podcast about this last year, which you can have a listen to. But as a quick reminder, in significant COVID-19 infection, we need to actually increase steroid dose to 20 milligrams four times a day and then slowly reduce that down to 10 milligrams four times a day and then to their usual steroid dose once they're fully recovered from COVID-19 infection. So quite a different uh, sick day regimen there. Please do have a look at my podcast from last year for some further details about that. And then what about adrenal crisis? Well, this, of course, is an outcome we all want to avoid in primary care. It carries a 6% mortality rate. So if we do see anyone acutely unwell uh, with Addison's disease, we should have a low threshold to administer 100 milligrams of hydrocortisone, stat, either IM or IV, and fluids if possible. Uh, and of course, uh, we need to contact our hospital colleagues urgently to admit that individual for further management. Now, in primary care, we also need to be aware that everyone living with Addison's disease would benefit from a routine annual review and perhaps some blood tests. Now, the reason for this is because of that close relationship with other autoimmune conditions, such as type 1 diabetes and vitiligo, as I've mentioned already. Within that BJGP paper I was telling about, there was a really useful table outlining potentially coexistent autoimmune diseases um, <clears throat> for patients living with Addison's disease. And they suggest investigations to exclude these potentially coexistent autoimmune diseases. So, for example, we should exclude pernicious anemia in everyone living with Addison's disease and check a full blood count and vitamin B12 on an annual basis. We should also exclude celiac disease, check an anti-TTG, consider ruling out autoimmune liver disease, checking LFTs, and then go on to check liver autoantibodies if LFTs are deranged. Exclude autoimmune thyroid disease, as I've also mentioned. Type 1 diabetes, if they're not known to have diabetes, so consider checking a fasting glucose or an HbA1c. Autoimmune parathyroid disease, check a bone profile and go on to check a PTH if calcium levels are low. On physical examination, be aware of features of vitiligo, like our patient Louise has, 
or features of alopecia areata. And we should be also aware of the potential of gonadal autoimmune disease. Uh, and if we do suspect premature gonadal failure, we should perhaps consider checking um, reproductive hormones as well. So some really useful tips within that BJGP paper. Well worth having a look at that paper. I've put a link to that paper in the show notes for this podcast. And then finally, I wanted to talk about investigating cortisol abnormalities, not just suspected cortisol deficiency, Addison's disease like Louise appears to have, but also suspected cortisol excess as well, uh, Cushing syndrome, for example. Uh, and these tips and hacks came from a very helpful BMJ rational testing article published during 2019 entitled Investigating Cortisol Abnormalities. So let's start with investigated, investigating suspected cortisol excess. So the first key take-home message for us all here, ladies and gentlemen, is that a random cortisol is of limited clinical value when testing for cortisol excess. So we should all stop checking random cortisol levels in primary care. The preferred first-line test for cortisol excess is actually a 24-hour urinary-free cortisol. Of course, this can be a bit, a bit of a chore for both our patients and for us as HCPs. So actually, what this paper tells me is that we can consider doing an overnight dexamethasone suppression test in primary care. It's actually quite straightforward. We prescribe one milligram of dexamethasone, which the patient takes around about 11 to 12 midnight. And then we should arrange to check their serum cortisol at 9 a.m. Uh, the following morning. If that cortisol returns at less than 50 nanomoles per liter, then that essentially excludes Cushing syndrome. So something definitely we can consider in primary care. And then what about investigating suspected cortisol deficiency? Well, I've talked a wee bit about this already in the context of Louise and her suspected Addison's disease. The preferred initial test, most helpful test, is a 9 a.m. cortisol. Deficiency is highly unlikely if that 9 a.m. cortisol is over uh, around 4 to 500 nanomoles per litre. And if that 9 a.m. cortisol comes back below 150 nanomoles per litre, then that individual needs urgent discussion or even referral with our endocrinology colleagues to rule out adrenal insufficiency. There is this gray area between 150 and 400 nanomoles per litre where individuals do require further investigation, perhaps not so urgently as those less than 150. And the gold standard test here is the short synaphthan test. Again, this is a test we can do in primary care and indeed it's something I have done on numerous occasions in primary care. Synaphthan is something we can prescribe on a GP10 what we should do is check a baseline cortisol level. Then we should administer 250 micrograms of synaphthan, either IM or IV, and then repeat that cortisol level 30 minutes later. 
if that repeat cortisol level is over 450 nanomoles per liter or greater, then that is a satisfactory response and essentially excludes uh, an adrenal insufficiency. So I thought overall some really useful tips in that uh, rational testing article published in the BMG. So returning to Louise then, uh, our 19-year-old living with type 1 diabetes and hypothyroidism. She's had these unexplained recurrent bouts of hypoglycemia. She's got evidence of postural hypotension. She's got evidence of vitiligo on her face. We are highly suspicious here. She may have an underlying diagnosis of Addison's disease. So I, I discussed her case urgently with my endocrinology colleagues and we checked an urgent 9am cortisol, which did indeed come back below 150. So uh, this really essentially confirms a diagnosis of Addison's disease. So thank you all for listening. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please do make sure to subscribe to our podcasts, which are available on all major platforms. Get in touch via social media on Twitter at Dr. Kevin Fernando or email me on kevin at gpnotebook.co.uk if you have any questions, comments or ideas for future podcasts. You should also visit us at www.gpnotebookeducation.com to hear about our upcoming virtual GP Notebook study groups for 2021, as well as download free resources and shortcuts to make our lives a wee bit easier, but ultimately to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. <laughs>